0: um good to be with you and i uh, hope you're having a good morning so far my name is phil I'm, I'm part of the team here and we are right in the middle of a series where we're looking at a letter in the bible called the letter to the galatians just give me a wave if you've been to at least some or all of our sessions so far where the rest of you been I'm joking. Um, So, we've been making our way through this letter. It's in the Bible, in the New Testament. It's actually the earliest letter that we have ever written uh, by someone in the New Testament. And it was written to a group of churches uh, that a man called Paul started in an era called Galatia. It's kind of modern day Turkey today. And he writes a letter to these at least four churches in Galatia, really just giving them advice on how to grow in their love of Jesus, how to grow in their Christian faith. And so we've been kind of taking a tour through Galatians, looking at what he says. And just to say, today is the last one in that series until we carry on after Christmas. Exactly. So it's going to be like a cliffhanger today, all right? We're just going to, it's going to be like a drop the mic, cliffhanger moment, make you want more. And then uh, over the next four weeks, we're going to be doing a shorter series looking at um, what it means to live uh, with uh, an appetite for extraordinary prayer. And so that's going to be really fun as we look at the subject of prayer together. So let's dive straight in. We're in Galatians chapter 4. And uh, we're going to start with a quote from a, a man called Tim Keller who says this, When the salvation of Jesus Christ comes into your life, you see yourself as more wicked and sinful than you ever dared believe, and yet more valued and loved and affirmed than you ever dared hope at the same time at the same time and this quote by tim Keller really encapsulates what we're going to look at today in galatians because in galatians what the writer paul is going to do is like hold up a mirror to us and say you need to remember both who you used to be before jesus and who you now are because of jesus i want you to look back remember what life used to be like before christ look in the mirror but also remember the work that God has done in your life, that you are now more loved and valued and affirmed than you ever dared hope. And both of these are actually really important perspectives to have if we're to be the people that live amazed with the grace of God. If you live with only one side of that picture, your life can start to live out of kilter and in in an unbalanced way. So for example, if on the one side you think, well, I'm not really that sinful, sin's not really that bad, God doesn't really hate sin that much. We can kind of be tricked into believing that salvation is something that we're entitled to. I'm a human being. I'm made in God's image. I'm entitled to the grace of God. If we don't actually realize how sinful sin really is. On the other hand, if we don't really believe that the work of God in our lives actually transforms us and changes us. If we really think, well, I believed in Jesus, but really I'm still a sinner you know, and I'm just trying my heart, I'm trying to live a good life, suddenly you can find yourself living a Christian life that is very insecure, very driven, trying to perform for God, rather than living from the grace of God. We need both perspectives, who I used to be, but who I now am. And that's what we're going to look at today in Galatians chapter 4, and this is what Paul is doing as he holds a mirror up to us to look into. So we're going to read from Galatians chapter 4. I'm actually going to start a few verses earlier just to help us get some context. This is what he said. So in Christ Jesus, you who are all, you are all children of God through faith, for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Chapter 4. What I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different than a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Amazing words. Let's just pray and then we'll dive in. Father, I just thank you for the power of the word of God. Thank you for the power of these words in the Bible. Lord, we thank you that you say that when we mix the hearing of the word with faith, then we're changed. And so I pray today, Father, as we come to your word, would you cause faith to rise in our hearts Lord, I pray for a deep revelation of the grace of God. I pray for everyone here, no matter what background we've come from, whether we've come for the first time today, whether we're close to God or far from God, I just wanna pray for each one of you this morning that you would have a revelation that you are loved by the Father, that he loves you. You are more loved and valued and affirmed than you ever dared hope. You're loved by the Father. And I want to pray, Holy Spirit, for a revelation of that truth this morning, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So as we consider these verses we've just read, really you can pick out three key themes, three kind of key acts, if you like. If this was a story, it would have three acts. And the three acts are slavery, redemption, and blessing. Okay? Three acts to the story. And Paul is holding this mirror up that we might look in it, who you once were, who we now are by taking us through this journey of slavery, redemption, and blessing. And to those that he's writing this letter to, they instantly would have recognized in these themes their most favorite of all Jewish stories, and it's the story of the Exodus. Now, you can read about this story in the book of... Very good. That was very good. You can read about the story in the book of Exodus... (laughs) And it's the story of Israel who had been captive in Egypt for over 400 years in slavery, enslaved. But then how one day God took them out of Egypt. He redeemed Israel and brought them out of slavery and set them on the path towards the promised land. And he blessed them. And so as Paul is going through these themes, they would have been joining the dots with this favorite and well-known Jewish story of the Exodus, slavery, redemption, and blessing. But what Paul does is he says, you need to understand that the Exodus was a shadow of the real main event that was still to come. When the time had fully come, God sent Jesus, his son. And so he's repurposing this story and he's saying, listen, Jesus is the central hero and all the the, the beautiful stories of the Exodus that you know and love, they were all pointing towards Jesus. And so that's what we're going to look at together today as we get into these themes. So Acts chapter 1, slavery. Paul says, what I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different than a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Okay, so this is where Paul starts the story, slavery. And again, remember, his Jewish hearers who had been thinking, yeah, Israel was enslaved for 400 years. But he begins to unpack this truth for them. He says, actually... It doesn't matter how much religious pedigree you have, what your background is, what promises you carry from God, the only way that you can inherit the promises of God is by putting your faith in Jesus. You you can't inherit the promises by following your external religious rules and regulations. God set things aside for you, but the only way that you can access them is through putting your faith in Christ alone. And remember, he's writing to a group in the church in Galatia called the Judaizers. And they were trying to persuade the Gentile Christians that they needed to add to their faith in Christ all the regulations of the Jewish law. And they're saying, you can only be right with God if you keep the religious rules. And Paul is saying, that is not so. He's saying, you cannot inherit what God has promised to you, but through Jesus. He says, at the moment, you're like an underage heir that has lots of promises, but no fulfillment. That's what he's saying in this passage. Now, Carol and I were recently on holiday, and we binge-watched Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice for about the hundredth time. Just wave at me if you've ever done that. If you're a husband particularly, you get good points for watching Pride and Prejudice with your wife. I'm just saying, okay, Pride and Prejudice. And, and Jane Austen, the author of Pride and Prejudice, one of her favorite kind of tropes and devices to turn around terrible circumstances was the promise that one day you would inherit a fortune and then everything would be rosy. So, you know, if you're Elizabeth Bennet in the story, you marry Mr. Darcy and you get your 10000 a year. Okay? And this was a device that a lot of novelists use to turn around terrible circumstances, this idea of inheriting things if you just married the right person. What well, Paul is saying here, the only way that you get to inherit eternal life and salvation and all the promises of God is you have to marry Jesus. You can't marry the law, you can't marry external religious rules, you can't... Just dress right or go through the right religious procedures and think that will make you right with God. The only way that you're made right with God and you inherit his promises, you've got to connect to Jesus. It's about faith in Christ. And he says, if we don't do that, then we remain like slaves. And slaves cannot inherit anything. They cannot inherit anything. And he says specifically here that we are slaves to the elemental forces of the world what's he talking about well commentators will say different things but we know at least in the new testament that all of us there are two things that we are spiritual slaves to sin and death (laughs) this is good news isn't it so far you're looking glum but it gets better i promise you we are all born slaves to sin and death that's romans 3 and romans 6 You know, it doesn't matter how many collagen tablets you take, how much vitamin C you take, you could sleep in an oxygen tank at night for the rest of your life, you could go to the gym every day, you could eat healthy, clean food, you could avoid processed junk, and still, sorry to break it to you, we're all going to die. We're all going to die one day. We are slaves to death, and there's nothing that you can do to release yourself from that reality. And Scripture says the reality that goes alongside that is that we are all born slaves to sin, And there's nothing you can do about that either. Any parents in the room realize that you never had to teach your children to sin? You you never had to teach yourself to sin. You just just did it naturally. It just kind of came out of you. And there's nothing that you can do about that either. In the same way that you can't stop yourself dying one day. Scripture says that we are slaves to sin and death. Slaves. You know, it's interesting, even in our culture, our wider culture at the moment, there's so much... Anxiety about things like artificial intelligence, aren't there at the moment? You know, people saying this is an existential threat to humanity. I just want to suggest to you, just, it's just a thought from me, it may not be right, but I would suggest to you that actually every innovation that has ever happened in humanity has been fraught with danger. Why? Because people use them. <laughs> you know, when man first discovered fire... You know, the, the, the discovery of steel, the discovery of chariots, the discovery of atomic fusion, the discovery of digital technology and the internet, the discovery of artificial intelligence. All these things are just things that are used by people who are born slaves to sin and death. Those things in themselves may not necessarily be bad or good. But as someone once said, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. You bring yourself to the party Just think about the way that you use technology. You bring yourself to that. (laughs) The reality is, Scripture says, we are slaves to the elemental forces of this world, and there ain't nothing that you can do to free yourself from that reality. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. Without Christ, we're slaves. That's what Paul is saying. And he's saying it doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter if you're a a Jew with all these precious promises from God through the Exodus, or if you're a pagan Gentile who's got no religious background at all. He says, you're both slaves. And I was reading the, the story just this week again of John Newton who wrote that amazing hymn, Amazing Grace. Literally wrote it just up the road in Olney. He was 47 years old when he wrote that hymn. And he wrote it off the back of an experience with the grace of God when he suddenly realized he was a slave to sin and he needed rescuing. And many of you know the story that John Newton was a a slave owner, a slave purchaser. And he would travel the seas purchasing slaves and selling them. And then one day he was on his slave ship caught in in the middle of a massive storm. And he thought the whole ship was going to perish. And he cried out to God and he said, God, would you have mercy on me and that everyone on this ship? And for 11 hours, his ship went through the most terrible storm, but then came out of it. And off the back of that moment, John Newton suddenly had the profound revelation, I am a wretch. And I'm saved by the grace of God. And he wrote those beautiful words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And right near the end of his life, his memory started to go actually near the end of his life, but people would often talk to him and he would say this, I I can remember clearly two things. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. I am a great sinner. Christ is a great savior. We all need saving. You know, my... My wife, Carol, and I, our stories of how we came to Christ are polar opposites. So I, I went to church before I was even born. So I was brought up in a Christian family. My dad was a Christian. My grandfather was a Christian. My great-grandfather was a Christian. My great-great-grandfather was a Christian. Like It just goes back and back and back. And so when I became a Christian, I'd grown up going to church. I became a Christian tucked up in my nice little middle-class house in my mother's bed as she led me to Christ as a six-year-old, and I prayed a prayer. That's me holding the blankets, if you didn't realize. Just tucking myself in, okay? See, that that was me. It was no smells, bells, or whistles. It was all very kind of nice and neat and clean and mm, tucked in. My wife, however, she grew up in an atheist home. She'd never been to a, a church meeting whatsoever. Evolution was taught as the gospel truth for her. And at the age of 16, she was in a street gang in southeast London, And she just vandalized some toilets in Sidcup with her gang and they'd gone into the nearby woods and she looked around at everyone who was off their face and she thought to herself, there has to be more to life than this. And so she walked off from the crowd of her friends into the fields, found a tree, a secluded tree, got on her knees and prayed, God, if you're real, I have to know you. And she said instantly, she sobered up and she had the most powerful revelation of Jesus she's probably ever had and she's like she gave her life to Jesus. We have two polar opposite stories. Guess what? Both of us were just as enslaved to sin as one another. Both of us couldn't free ourselves. Our my religious pedigree, her lack of it, didn't matter. We were slaves without Jesus. And it doesn't matter this morning if you're black or white. If you live in Putnam or Kempston, if you vote Labour or Conservative, if you're a gardener, if you're a scientist, if you're a sports person, if you're a student, it doesn't matter if you're educated well or not you feel like you're not very educated. These things don't matter. Paul is saying we are slaves apart from someone who comes to save us. We all have that in common, friends. You're probably sitting next to someone who's very different than you, but I tell you what you have in common. We were all slaves. (laughs) And the good news, Paul goes on to tell, is this. We have a redeemer. We have a redeemer, and his name is Jesus. Paul goes on in Galatians, and he says this. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Paul says, we have a great redeemer, (laughs) and his name is Jesus. And there is no one too far gone that he cannot reach. To him, there's no such thing as a hopeless case. There's no one too far away from him that he can't reach. He is the great redeemer. And he comes to redeem our lives. The the word redeem here is a a Greek word, exagazoro, exagazoro, And it means to buy back, to ransom, or to purchase. And the, the specific meaning is to purchase, to seize the opportunity to purchase something. So I don't know if you've ever... Had that experience where you didn't expect to buy something but you suddenly saw something and you thought I need that in my life. I, I, I still remember walking around Tesco's years ago I was just minding my own business and there was a guy in Tesco's demonstrating the sharpest knife in the world and he was cutting through a steel hammer with a knife. Now before I saw that I didn't realize I needed that but when I saw it I bought three. Like his marketing spiel worked so well on me. I bought three of them and we had them for years because it was a a purchasing opportunity too good to turn down. And that's the idea with redemption is that God looks into our lives. He sees that we're slaves to sin and he's like, that is too good an opportunity for me to turn down. I will redeem them and purchase them for myself. That's what the word redemption means. God is our redeemer And again, for the people of Israel, they are connecting it to their story, their history of the Exodus, where God literally redeemed them out of slavery. And you may know the story because it's an unusual story about the way God did it. 400 years in slavery, and then one night for Israel, everything changes. God begins to speak to them through Moses, and this is his instructions to the Israelites. He says, you're to take a fresh lamb and sacrifice it And then tonight, you're to put the blood of the lamb on the wooden door frames of your homes. And tonight, when death passes through Egypt, it will pass over you and you'll be spared. And that is exactly what happened. That night, the Israelites put blood on the door frames of their homes and death passed through Egypt. But they were all spared by the blood of the lamb. And Jews to this day celebrate that day as the Passover. Passover. Literally the day when death passed over them and they were freed. And as we come to the New Testament, Paul is saying to his writers, God has now sent his son to redeem you. He sent his son to redeem you. Uh, You know, maybe you're new to church or maybe a new Christian and sometimes you come to church and it can be confusing because you hear people talking about Jesus as the Lamb of God. You know, why do we talk about God connected to an animal you know why not a cow or a dog or you know a pig why a lamb well the reason is the exodus story it's the reason when John the Baptist saw Jesus for the very first time he says this is the lamb of God and he's come to take away the sin of the world because he foresaw something about Jesus that one day Jesus would shed his blood like those early lambs in exodus story His blood would be smeared on the wooden crossbeam of a crucifixion device. And his blood was shed not just for one nation, but for every person that would put their trust in him. His blood was shed for us. Isaiah says the punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him. His blood instead of yours. And what that means is that where we were slaves to sin and death, suddenly sin and death pass over us and we're set free. And it's interesting with the Israelites because they weren't just set free the next day, but it says they walked out of Egypt carrying the treasures of Egypt with them. So in other words, they weren't just freed, they were blessed. <laughs> they were blessed. And that brings us to the last part of our story, blessing. Blessing. Paul says God redeemed us that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Paul is saying, you have not just received mercy, you have received blessing from God. You've received blessing from God. You've received grace. And it's not like 10 commandments written on pieces of stone that can only deal with external behavior. He says, you, through your faith in Christ, have been made children of God. You can now call him Father. I thought you'd be much more excited about some of this, but it's okay. I'm excited. I'll be excited for you. Abba, Father. We can now cry out, he's my daddy. He's my father. he's not just cleaned me up a little bit and said, right, now go and behave a little bit better. No, 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 no. He's completely changed who I am from the inside. You understand the work of the Spirit doesn't work from the outside in, it works from the inside out, which means that you are transformed the moment that you put your faith in Jesus and it can never be undone. That moment you believe a pardon you receive, and you get grafted into the family of God, you become his child, you become his son, you become his daughter. And this changes everything. This changes everything. The phrase that Paul uses here is, Abba, Father. By the Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. The interesting thing about those two words, Abba and Father, always occur next to each other in the New Testament. But one of those words is Aramaic, and one of those words is Greek. Abba is the Aramaic, the the Jewish word for father. Abba is an intimate term. It's a close term. It's like daddy. But father is the word pater in Greek, which is the word that Greeks would have used for their fathers. And so Paul is fusing these two together. And if we just put that next quote on, Fillmore says this, this is perhaps why the word Abba is always followed by the Greek word pater or father. Whenever it occurs in the New Testament, Jews and Greeks can cry out with one breath together that God is their dad. He's saying it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, you're one in Christ Jesus and you now have one father. (laughs) He's your dad. He's your dad. And it matters to him about you. we just read you this quote that was written by someone standing on this stage. It says this, the motive throbbing in the heartbeat of God as he sent his only son into the world was love. Christ's death on the cross was necessary so that sin would no longer be a barrier to us coming to know God as Father and being enveloped into the eternal love of the Godhead. The cross makes the ultimate goal of God possible to have you in his family forever with the barrier of sin finally removed. I am not just a slightly better behaved version of my former self, I am a new creation in Christ, the old has gone and the new has come. I have received a complete transformation of identity. I'm not just off the hook with God, but I'm one of the family, grafted into the eternal blessings of my father's house. Now that is something worth getting excited about. You've got to understand that you've not just received mercy from God, you've received grace. See, if today you stood before a judge and you've been doing 100 miles an hour on the A421, you know you're guilty and the judge knows you're guilty. And the just judgment for your sin would be to receive a fine. That would be judgment. But you don't receive judgment. The judge says to you, even though you're guilty, you can walk free. That's called mercy. It's when you don't get what you deserve. But grace is completely different. Grace is when the judge steps down and he not only says to you, you're free to go. He hands you a check for 10 million pounds and says, spend it however you want. That's called grace. It's when you get what you don't deserve. And in the gospel, we've received grace and mercy. Grace and mercy. Let's finish where we started. Tim Keller says, when the salvation of Jesus Christ comes into your life, you'll see yourself as more wicked and sinful than you ever dared believe, and yet more valued and loved and affirmed than you ever dared hope at the same time. This is the gospel, and if we will view who we used to be, but also who we now are, we will be a people amazed at the grace of God, and that's my prayer and my hope for each one of us. Why don't we stand and let's pray.